Hey guys, Jules here. So if you've listened to our podcast at all before, you know how much I love the integration of the arts and culture or the arts and history. Because here's the thing about artists, really of any kind. Artists are incredible observers and their work often documents important moments in our history, but they see things differently. Sometimes even they see all which we cannot see. And I was thinking about this a lot as I put together these episodes, this brief glimpse into the history of immigration for Catholics. Looking back on how artists documented these journeys is incredibly helpful to understand not simply historical shifts, but also brings us into the hearts and minds of the immigrants themselves. We'll talk a little bit more about this next month, by the way. But one of the scholars I spoke with, Father Mark Massa, who you heard from last episode, he brought up this one poem by an American poet in the early 20th century by the name of Stephen Vincent Benet. And I think it helps us to really understand and really gets to the heart of just what is at stake when someone leaves everything and everyone behind for a chance at a better life. There's a very poignant poem written by Stephen Vincent Benet, who's the poet who wrote uh, John Brown's Body. And, and Stephen Vincent Benet's um, poem is called The Western Star. And, it's, and it was about the first Puritans who arrived on this, um, in this continent as they set foot on land in Massachusetts. And it ends, the poem ends by saying, um, they, they came resolved to be English and they knew it not, but they would never be English again. And that experience, even Ms. Denae's poem, really resonates the experience of every immigrant group. All those people came here from Ireland or Germany or Italian or wherever it is they came here, resolved to hold on to their identity, both their national identity as well as their Catholic identity. And they didn't know it, but they would never be Italian or German or, or whatever again. This is the story of O Pioneers, Christ in Concrete, and the National Parish Model. So last episode, we started our discussion into the migration patterns of Catholics to the United States. By the way, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know what I'm about to say. (laughs) Please, please, pretty please listen to the first episode of this month before listening to this one. Otherwise, you might be a little bit confused. But last episode, we talked about the first two migrations, the first being English Catholics, who weren't even allowed to practice their faith in the early colonies except early on in places like Maryland. And then there was the second migration, which was primarily led by the absolutely massive influx of Catholics from Ireland, escaping the horrific poverty of the Irish potato famine and religious persecution as well. But I have something to admit to you all right now. (laughs) I actually kind of left out a part of this story last time. You see, there was technically another group within this second migration, and partly into the third as well. But their lives were often drastically different from their Irish counterparts, and that's the Germans. 
Here's Father Mark Massa again to explain. That Irish immigration then was supplanted by the German immigration fleeing the political revolutions going on in Germany in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. They did not settle on the East Coast. They, by and large, went to the Midwest. And indeed, there's a, there's a famous triangle in the, in the Midwest called the German Triangle. As Father Massa points out, the lives of Germans tended to differ pretty drastically from their European counterparts, and for a couple of reasons. These were not poor people. These were largely middle-class farmers who arrived, bought land in Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, and set up small farming communities. We also brought with them a very strong commitment to education, and therefore you have all kinds of Catholic institutions in the Midwest, like St. John's College in, in St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. Uh, they brought with them their own tradition of education as well as Benedictine monks. So that, that immigration experience was a very different one from the Irish experience on the East Coast. In this period, historians estimate about 1.6 million German immigrants came to the United States, most of whom were Catholic. As they immigrated, they had the benefits of often knowing various trades, small wealth, and as Father Massa mentioned, the ability to buy plots of land. By the way, the German triangle, which Father Massa mentioned, has pretty defined boundaries and according to most historians is connected from St. Louis to Cincinnati to Milwaukee and everything in between, just to give you a sense of the geographic landscape of this triangle. But despite their advantages, the Germans had, of course, one major disadvantage. They didn't, for the most part, speak English. And it's here, listeners, where we start to see the seeds of a dilemma slowly brewing for American Catholics. You see, at this point in American Catholic history, most of the priests were Irish, perhaps a few French in the South, and most of the Catholics were English speakers, right? The British and the Irish Catholics. So what is the American church to do? All of a sudden, the population of Catholics skyrockets in the states, and slowly, some of them don't speak the language. So with the Germans, the American church slowly implements a bit of an experiment, thanks in part to their European Catholic brethren. The German Catholic bishops decided to send over their own priests to minister to the rising German-American population. Here's Dr. Maria Mazinga again, who you heard from last episode. Another thing I would point out at this time is when the Germans come, they come to a largely English and Irish-dominated priest hierarchy. So when they come over, they don't speak the language of many of the priests at the time. So what happens is German priests begin migrating to the United States in order to serve the German population. Um, so you've got 50 German priests in the U.S. serving Germans, you know, a German population of 300,000 in 1843. Now, by 1869, the number of German-speaking uh, priests who had migrated here rose, from, uh, rose to 1,169. And this, these individuals come over to serve you know, at this time, it's like more than a million German um, immigrants. So you see this phenomenon of migration of priests that can speak the language of the parishioners um, migrating also with the parishioners. 
There's this incredible scene in Willa Cather's classic book, Oh Pioneers. I don't want to give too much of it away, but the story itself focuses on an immigrant community in Nebraska that's got kind of a bit of everyone. (laughs) There's descendants of early colonists, Scandinavians, and yes, even German Catholics. But in this scene, this young Catholic man dies suddenly, and Willa Cather, who, by the way, was not Catholic, remarks about the way in which the community responds to the young man's death. Cather writes, quote, The church has always held that life is for the living. While half of the village was mourning and preparing the funeral black for his burial on Monday, the other half was busy with white dresses and white veils for the great confirmation service. Cather seems to understand something so beautiful about these Catholic immigrant communities. They seem to know that life is all about paradox, the joys and the sorrows, the celebrations and the grief. And to me, it was the perfect illustration of what these immigrant communities must have felt in this new world. The shared connection with their brethren, the closeness of their parishes, the intense relief of being away from the suffering in Europe, all lived side by side with their physical poverty, their religious and language barriers, and their cultural longings. The second migration. Which brings me to the third great migration. As political turmoil, turning of regimes, war, and famine spread chaos throughout Europe, more groups begin the arduous journey to a land of more economic opportunity and, so they've been told, (laughs) religious freedom. What you have by the 1880s is a lot of economic dislocation happening on the European continent. Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. So what you've got is a a major transformation of land ownership in Central Europe. So you've got now a huge Polish migration. So let's start our third migration with these Polish Catholics who settle largely in places like Pennsylvania and perhaps most famously Chicago. They established something called the the, uh, Society of St. Stanislaus Kostka which is the patron saint of Poland. They have a parish of that name as well. And they, they just flock there. And church authorities begin accommodating the Poles by also bringing over Polish priests and Polish sisters to start schools and parishes in Chicago in particular. I have an old friend who just traveled to Chicago. She was raised there. And she took a picture of a grocery store where in the ethnic food aisle, it had at the very top, Polish food. (laughs) And I had to laugh because that's just how prevalent the Polish church's influence still is in Chicago today. And as it turns out, there are two very specific reasons for this. 
The first, of course, was the sheer number. You've got two million Poles migrating to the U.S. between 1870 and 1920. Most are Catholic. Um, by 1918, you've got the in the Archdiocese of Chicago alone, um, St. Stan's Parish has 40,000 members or souls, as they were known. So you've got a mass. That's the biggest parish in the United States in 1918. But there was this second factor, which helped European ethnic groups slowly make a life for themselves in our land. And it's a concept which I cannot stress enough (laughs) might be the one most important thing to know about the history of the Catholic Church in America. And it's called the National Parish. And I'm going to let Dr. Mazinga explain. What happened was with so many different ethnic Catholic groups coming to the United States, the idea became popular um, because this hadn't been tried in other parts of the world, not that I know of anyway. I think this was a unique development to the United States. The hierarchy decided to create national parishes. Now, a national parish is distinguished from territorial parish in that it's built exclusively to minister to people who speak a particular language and have a particular culture. In other words, the church in the U.S. composed at the time primarily of Irish bishops and archbishops was forced with an important decision. The same decision they faced a few decades previous when German immigrants slowly migrated to our land. Do we force the assimilation of our flock into the native way of life, including language and religious practices, so that they don't stand out? Or do we allow our flock to be as they are, to worship and speak as they are in their native language, and strengthen their own communities? This debate, by the way, would last for decades, but I'm going to let Dr. Bill Portier from the University of Dayton explain what happened next. By the end of the 19th century, there was an argument about the extent to which they should assimilate or the extent to which they should keep separate. And so there were very, there were controversies that involved very mundane, everyday, important kind of things, like where do you go to school? Do you join a labor union? Do you go to an Irish pub or a German beer garden? Or do you practice, you know, Puritan temperance? These are kind of culture things and religious things all mixed together. And there were these controversies that happened at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And by the time you get to the end of of World War I, that's when you have the beginnings of the immigrant Catholic subculture, it kind of starts in the 19th century, but it really solidifies at the beginning of the 20th century. And so the church in the United States decided, as Dr. Portier and Dr. Mazinga pointed out, to allow ethnic cultures to maintain their own unique religious and cultural practices. Please, Please think about this for a minute, because I can't stress enough how important this was for the church in America. 
Had the church and the society at large forced these immigrant communities to assimilate, had they been forced to forget their native languages and practices, then I'm not sure if the church in America could have survived, at least in the way that it did. And this wasn't just the case with the Polish church and the German church. There was still one more group yet to make their mark on American soil. In this third migration, and it happens to be the group where I find a good chunk of my own roots. And then you've also got the migration of um, mass migration of Italians, the Italian diaspora, as it's known. And they settle in large numbers in New York, Philadelphia, you know, Boston, San Francisco. You've got the first Italian national parish in Philadelphia in the mid-19th century or so, St. Mary Magdalene. To Pazza. But before 1870, you've got few Italians in the U.S. But between 1880 and 1900, you've got about a million coming to um, the United States. One million Italian Catholics in a 40-year period. That is just amazing. <laughs> and the Italian Catholics brought with them their own practices and experiences. Here's Father Mark Massa again. The Italian experience was largely from what's called the Mezzogiorno, that is the part of Italy south of Rome, the southern part of, of Italy, um, largely from around Naples and just north of Naples. That experience uh, brought with it a very anti-clerical um, uh, Catholic understanding that because the papal states uh, made up the, the central part of Italy, that is, it's a, there was a political entity controlled by the Pope and the Vatican, and there was serious problems with the running of that and serious injustices. So the Italian Catholics who brought their Catholicism with them and at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century brought a very different kind of Catholicism from either the, the Irish or the German. As you can imagine, a highly institutional Irish English-speaking clan put up against an anti-clerical, highly religiously pious clan in the Italians we're bound to have some problems. <laughs> Anyone who's ever studied the violent disputes of the Irish and Italian mobs should know what I'm talking about, of course. But those internal ethnic battles were, of course, only part of the problem. So immigration really was uh, a way of life uh, for America. It is how uh, the American economy and the American nation grew. This, by the way, is Dr. Christopher Shannon, professor of history at Christendom College in Virginia. You'll be hearing from Dr. Shannon a lot more next month in our series on the Catholic ghettos, or as they're commonly known as the Catholic ghettos. But one thing Dr. Shannon in our discussion said was that he was full of stories about the small, everyday battles these immigrant communities often faced. And sometimes it happened the moment they set foot onto our land. Something as simple as immigrants uh, piling off the boats and, and being robbed or having their, their luggage held for ransom, if you will. I'll take your bags for you. Oops, uh, it's going to cost you to get them back. Uh, sometimes uh, unscrupulous um, rail uh, ticket merchants overcharging them for train tickets, things like that. The physical turmoil of life in these urban immigrant hotspots cannot be overstated. We'll get a little bit more into this next month, by the way. But for now, though, let's talk about one more example in the arts. And it's from a somewhat forgotten book, 
by an author, Pietro di Donato, called Christ in Concrete. Now, unlike O Pioneers, I actually haven't read Christ in Concrete in full, partly because it's somewhat hidden for the world for several decades, only really known to academics and historians, and partly because it's actually kind of hard to read. (laughs) It's written in a kind of avant-garde sort of prose, often buildings and poverty taking place as central characters in the story. But the basic plot of the story is this. Jeremio is a bricklayer providing for his family when he dies suddenly in a work accident. He leaves behind his pregnant wife and their other children, including the oldest, Paul. And Paul starts going to work in his father's former position as a bricklayer. But because he's still a boy, only 12, he isn't paid what the others are paid. And his family basically begins to diminish into poverty. And as the story goes along, we see Paul and several other characters journey through this poverty. The story is considered one of the most accurate portrayals of early immigrant life at the beginning of last century, particularly for Italian immigrants. But here's why I'm fascinated by this story. I did a lot of research on this book, trying to find anybody, any scholar who could speak to it. And what I found was an old article with a quote by the Italian-American author, Helen Barolini. She's a linguist, so she studies the language of a lot of these early immigrants. And she wrote that Di Donato, the author, was a master at making a bridge between, quote, a lost mythical Italy and a real but never realized America. One final thing before we go. Throughout my research, I came across, as I've said in a previous episode, a narrative thread which weaves its way through the story of the Catholic American experience. And that is, of course, anti-Catholicism and persecution. So I thought for today I would end with a story. It's a story I wanted to add because of the sheer just absurdity (laughs) of its persecution towards Catholics and just the bigotry that Catholic immigrants faced. And it's the story of a Pope Stone. I'm going to let Dr. Mazinga tell it in full. The Washington Monument was scheduled to be built in the 1830s. Legislation was passed that this monument to George Washington would be built in the capital city. They held a design competition. But there's no money to to build this monument, this beautiful monument that we have in Washington, D.C. to the first president. So a call was put out for donations of stone to come to the United States to build this monument. 
Pope Pius IX at the time sends this beautiful piece of stone from Italy as a contribution to the building of the monument. All of these pieces that were donated, there were about 200 pieces total, are actually now inside the walls of the Washington Monument. But what happened was in the 1850s, uh, a group of gentlemen from what was known as the Know Nothing Party came and stole the stone and threw it into the Potomac River and smashed it. It was a three-foot uh, slab of uh, marble. It was taken from the ruins of the Temple of Concord in Rome in, from 366 B.C. It was ex- extremely valuable, actually. So these these individuals come and they take the stone and they throw it into the Potomac and the stone is destroyed. And this this was because they thought putting a stone that was sent by the Pope would destroy America. It would be infiltrating America and it would be a terrible thing. So that's kind of my little sort of idea of a metaphor for anti-Catholicism. Um, in the 19th century United States, let's destroy the Pope stone. Even though it's, and you know, funnily enough, funnily enough, people realized afterwards, hey, that's actually really valuable stone. And you could see in the days afterwards, people fishing around the Potomac for pieces of stone because they knew they'd get money for the stone. (laughs) By the 1920s, immigration slowed, thanks primarily to the Immigration Act of 1924 also known as the Johnson-Reed Act. This legislation significantly limited the numbers of immigrants from various countries. By the way, the church hierarchy in the United States was fiercely opposed to this legislation. But as the saying goes, I don't know if it's appropriate here, but the damage had been done. (laughs) And the mass influx of Catholic migrants started to navigate life in this new world. And as the decades went on, Catholics became more and more part of the mainstream of American life, assimilating into the fabric of the American middle class, and even occupying the highest office in the land. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. European Catholic immigrants survived, assimilated, and thrived into American society thanks mostly to the national parish model. Immigrant communities, thanks to national parishes, were able to maintain their own languages and cultures, which eased them into the process of living in a new land. And in spite of the significant challenges they faced, these European Catholic immigrants did in fact basically end up just like every other American by the 1950s. The national parish model saved their communities and in turn probably saved the church in America too. Now there may be something you might be thinking, of course. We've talked about three migrations so far, each from Europe, each allowed to maintain their own unique religious and cultural identities when they moved to our beautiful land. 
But we have one more migration to talk about. Hispanic Catholics are about to enter the scene in just massive numbers. And the church chooses, for various reasons, to respond a little bit differently. So how does the church welcome into its fold our brothers and sisters of the fourth great migration? How does it succeed? And if we're being honest, how does it fail? Next time on Mystery Through Manners. Thank you so very much to Father Rob Galea and Ira Lasco for letting me use their beautiful song, Dominoes. Father Galea is a priest from Malta and Australia who travels around the world speaking and performing. Please, please visit our website for more information about their wonderful music and his ministry. Also, if you're interested in having your music highlighted in one of our episodes, please contact me. (laughs) I'd love to hear from you. We just absolutely love sharing the beautiful music of our brothers and sisters. One more episode to go, folks, in our immigration series, which God willing will launch Thursday, December 20th. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.